You're listening to Afraid to Ask. This is a podcast where we tackle all those embarrassing or scary topics by grilling experts on the subject. My name is Helen. And my name is Andrea. And today we're talking open plan spaces like offices or classrooms with AUT senior lecturers Dr Rachel Morrison and Dr Leon Bernardi. Do these open spaces inspire or motivate people? Or are they stifling development and personal drive? Are they actually a good idea? If you have a question that you're afraid to ask, don't hesitate to drop us a line with the hashtag AskAUT. So let's get on with the show. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? I say who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. What's the deal with airplane peanuts? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? At this point, I'm too afraid to ask. So what's happening in classroom spaces? Because, I've, I mean, I'm going to, I've got a bit of an interest in this space. Um, I have two children that are in um, primary schooling, so I'm seeing a little bit of an action. So I have an idea, but there must be some people who don't know what, what's happening in the classroom, and it's a little bit different to what we might have, might have experienced um, way back when. Yep, so uh, the New Zealand Minister of Education has got a policy strategy um, to implement a so-called modern learning environment standard in all schools by 2021. Um, and so that means 2,200 schools across the country are going to have to, uh, in some shape or form, adhere to the so-called modern learning environment standard. And so that's a, I suppose we could say, uh, at its simplest level, a building standard. It's a, a different approach to conceptualising the, um, the look and feel of a classroom space. And in fact, the notion of a classroom is... is becoming redundant so it's much more the notion of a <clears throat> a learning space it's got um, uh, boundaries that aren't as defined as you would find in a traditional classroom so what do these places look like what if I went into a classroom well that um, I suppose the the the, um, the modernist notion of building is that form follows function so a traditional school can't be mistaken to be an airport concourse or a shopping centre, but a modern school could be, because the modern school doesn't look anything like a traditional school. So you'd expect to find um, very few similarities between them, apart from wide concourses, um, flowing spaces, spaces that merge into each other. Um, you won't find square boxes with 30 students sitting in them in rows or even in groups with one teacher. You'll find big shared commons areas where there'd be maybe 90, 100 students, three or four teachers, and uh, to the untrained eye or the inexperienced eye, you would at times think that there's no order because students seem to be moving around almost at will. Um, though I think that, that that's also exaggerated because in actual fact there's, there's, there's quite a lot more order and control than we realise. I have to chime in here because I also have, a, have an interest in that I also have two children and they have just switched to a school exactly like the one you've described. Um, you walk in, it's a huge long, almost like a corridor that runs from one end to the other and there are no defined classrooms along it. There are sort of separating partition walls but no classrooms. There are a lot of breakout spaces, so there's the science room and, and the library, you know, and the cooking, the, the STEM room and things like that, but there aren't anything what you would call, there aren't traditional classrooms as you would call them. And I must admit, when I first walked in, I thought, 
it's a little bit like a university. And my kids, when they first walked in, said, it's like one of those campuses on TV or something. That's what they thought. So the school side of things is not my research area, but I too have two children in <laughs> open plan studio classrooms. And, um, and we've had experience of both. And my kind of feeling about the open plan classroom is that it suits most kids, but for the children who it doesn't suit, it really doesn't suit. Whereas the single cell classroom, much like my research looking at offices, um, kind of suits most people. Like there aren't that many people that would really struggle just sharing an office with one or two people. But as soon as you put workers into these hot desking or open plan environments, that's where some of the negative outcomes happen in terms of the interpersonal relationships, which is what I looked at. So yeah, can you tell us a bit more about your research? So I was um, I was interested in looking at that future of work notion of that the change in the way that people work. So you know, moving towards um, activity based working and hot desking and the huge open plan environments that a lot of organisations are now putting in place. T- to be fair, primarily for cost saving reasons, but there are um, there are some other sort of efficiency reasons. Um, and my um, interest is looking at interpersonal relationships, so friendships and enemieships and distraction and, and cooperation and things. Um, and I sort of had an expectation that we would find perhaps an increase in distraction um, but I was also expecting to find that we'd have an increase in supervisor support because they'd have more access to their supervisors and an, ex- and an increase in you know, co-worker friendships. But what I actually found was that co-worker support and co-worker friendships became worse, as well as the distraction and the uncooperative behaviour and the negative relationships um, becoming worse. So, um, yeah, there was really no happy ending to, to, to what I looked at. But I think, you know, it was a pretty blunt tool. I just surveyed a thousand workers in those, in, you know, those varying work environments. And um, I think probably a better way of researching it is to look specifically at well-designed workplaces that have kind of managed to do that well, as well as really poorly designed ones that aren't working, and to cherry-pick the best things. So that's kind of where I'm looking now. Just see all these <clears throat> synergies. Um, so there's just a couple of things I wanted to pick up on what Rachel said. So the the, the point about um, <clears throat> you know you assume they would have more access to their supervisors. Mm. So let's switch that into the classroom, into the school learning scenario. So let's let's assume the supervisors, the teachers, right? Yeah. So the question is, um, if your question is, do workers, i.e., students, have more access to the supervisors, i.e., teachers? in an open plan space, the findings of my research is yes, they do. Mm. Yes, they do. And, 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 they, and in fact, and here's, here's, the, here's the interesting finding, and, and keep in mind that, that my research is um, qualitative, uh, theoretical, and uh, critical. Um, and, uh, um, but, you know, it's, it's based on, on, on quite extensive field work as well. The... Um, one of the clear findings is that that um, students actually, across the board in all the schools I've been in, appreciate having three teachers instead of one, and they appreciate having um, being able to to uh, interact with more than one teacher at a time. I mean, don't mean simultaneously, but you know, that in a day, especially in primary schools, where mm-hmm. we're typically in a traditional traditional primary school, a child would only have one teacher all the time. Mm-hmm. 
or for much of the time. Now they've almost always got at least three. And in some of the bigger spaces where there's even more permeability, they might have access to teachers in other commons as well. It does reduce that risk of getting a bad egg. You know, Mm. if you've got Mm. three teachers and Mm. you just have a personality clash Mm. with one of them, then, you know, they can can kind of manage that, I think, particularly as they get a wee bit older. Yeah, and I have heard that teachers are able to teach to their strengths. So if you've got three teachers in a room, one loves teaching maths, the other two not so much, you're able to to work Mm -hmm. those um, those well. Yeah, so I I sort of looked a little bit more deeply at that notion of um, supervisor support. Mm. Um, And anecdotally, um, what people were sort of saying as well is that um, when you have an open plan space and you have sort of theoretical access to your supervisor and you see them frequently, one of the things that might get lost is, um, you know, time that's put aside for specific supervision supervision meetings and mm. um, that one-on-one, you know, so if you're not sharing office with them, you might have a weekly or fortnightly or a monthly actual meeting where you're getting genuine support from that person and that's all they're doing in that moment. But I think once it all just becomes open plan and you're all sitting together, that type of support perhaps falls away a little bit and people are getting more access but perhaps less tangible support from those individuals. So, you know, I don't know for sure, but that's just um, one kind of possibility. So, But I mean, and, but then there's always, there's always a contra as well. And so there's a contra to what I was saying, uh, which is, again, kind of chimes in a little bit now with what you're saying. So one of the principles uh, is... Um, the rule of three. I mean, Stephen Heppel, who's um, from Bournemouth and has is, is been fairly influential in the development of thinking about learning spaces. I mean, he, he, he has a rule of three. So one of the rules of three is ask three, then me. So don't come to me as a teacher until you've asked at least three of your peers for help. But you, you see, you could argue that the reason for that is that you, what you're really trying to do is develop increased so-called learner agency. So you're trying to develop and student management, self-management of their own learning, and um, and I suppose we would we would argue that actually it's maybe not a, not a bad thing if you're if you are looking to to looking for support from from your peers, and and just you know here in the New Zealand context, the, the, the you know the influence of Maori uh, concepts and frameworks on some of our thinking in education, particularly. The idea that there's a mentor who actually is just a child, you know, that that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that you know, you've got these, you know, it's almost like a, a sibling mm-hmm. kind of mentorship. That, yeah, that, I mean, that sounds great to me. And um, if, if my children were, were to start to develop that sort of self, you know, um, self-driven way of learning that would be great but I would as a parent be a bit worried that they're asking the right peers and they're getting the right information from the peers so I would still want the teacher to be in there interacting Um, one thing with my children is that they're in a classroom a learning common of about 70 and there are three teachers but they are each tagged to an individual Mm. teacher who is always the one that they would go to for a, I don't know, a more general problem that's a not personal problem, a personal or problem. My work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that sort of support. So um, they're not sort of just sort of yeah randomly um, feel like they've got no one to actually go to. They do have a, a person, and it seems to work well. But having said that, my children are 
11 and 12 so they're already at the stage where they can sort of you know take care of themselves to a certain extent I don't know if I'd be so confident if they were just entering school uh, five or six. Yeah, my kids have had that learning studio, particularly my youngest one, since year zero. So he's never not been in that studio environment, other than one one semester when we were living outside of Auckland. Um, but I think, I mean, one of the things that I've kind of been thinking about more and more is this notion that it's going to happen anyway. And I found that in a really broad way, generally on average people reacted to it quite badly and began to withdraw socially in order to get some privacy perhaps to if they're overwhelmed with that much interaction with their colleagues that a good way of kind of restricting that is to just keep your head down and not interact and be less friendly so that was probably what was happening but in a in a ideal world where you've done it you know, really well and thoughtfully and you've thought about the types of people that are working together, it can work really well. And this this case study I've done in a law firm that was specially designed and newly built, and they did some really good things. So in terms of the supervisor support, they put the partners of each, like each partner was put with all of his or her associates and the partner almost got the worst desk. They got to be in the middle and all of the associates are sort of, arrayed in their desks around the partner who then has these pretty public phone calls with all their clients so that the associates and the junior law, um, the legal staff can actually listen and can, can hear what's going on and can ask questions and can chime in and one of the things that the more junior lawyers said they particularly liked is that they had you know, real genuine access to the way that these cases were progressing and it also meant that the more senior staff could overhear um, conversations and could kind of go, oh, I can, you know, I can help you with that. You know, perhaps you you need to look at, you know, X Y Z. Um, and so, really, kind of appreciated it. And they also made a big effort to put the senior staff in the exact same type of desk. So it was it went from being very hierarchical with the partners in their corner offices to being completely egalitarian. And in actual fact, the most senior partner, the managing managing partner of the whole firm specifically ask for the absolute worst desk in the entire law law firm so that when anyone complained to the COO about their desk, she would go, oh, perhaps you could just uh, swap with Gary. Would you like to swap with Gary or whatever his name is? And they're like, oh, no, okay, thanks. So that was a really clever and quite strategic way of managing that change, I think. Um, And no desks are bad. It's an absolutely delightful, amazing place with thousands and thousands of green walls and plants and, you know, it's really funky and... Um, and awesome but yeah I think the way that some of those open plan things can be put in place uh, that the way that change is managed I think can really have a big impact as well. Thinking about change actually I mean if we step back a bit I mean we don't why why did we move from these these smaller classrooms into the bigger spaces what what was happening um, because it's happened at a time since the eons between me going to school and my kids starting to school. So what's happening in the background and has it been influenced by the kinds of workspaces? Like I have only ever worked in an open plan office. Um, so I've, you know, I've never experienced an office. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? lucky, I've, lucky I've man. always had an office <laughs> and I can't imagine sharing. <laughs> yeah, the, um, <clears throat> I mean that that's that is an interesting question. The um, 
I suppose the uh, uh, again finding out of research uh, that that um, you know I and a number of other people um, who are working around me uh, are doing, you know, is that that there's a lot of architect-driven kind of thinking going on here, designer-driven thinking going on here. So. Um, and and I guess it's feasible that 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 architects who who you know are involved in multiple kinds of projects would look at corporate kinds of environments and changes in the corporate world, and and begin to wonder well why can't we apply those principles to schools as well? Uh, so that that I suppose is a feasible a feasible argument. Certainly, um, it's the architects and the designers who've got the ideas about you know the the, the the feasibility of the building and, and, and what it might, you know, end up looking like. They have that technical and, and, and professional expertise and knowledge. Um, so certainly for for decades at least, uh, um, particularly out of out of the US and and, and, um, and Europe, I mean there've been there've been architectural innovations going on for quite some time and you know these have been researched and discussed and, and, and promoted. Uh, and I think we, what we're seeing really is the uptake of some of those those innovative ideas in building uh, within education. Um, but there, you know, like anything, there's 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 multiple there's multiple I guess um, sets of reasons for why anything happens. So the OECD, which which you know, fancies itself as as a, as a form of global governance, and in fact, you know, with with a number of member key member states, it's got. Is able to exert significant influence internationally, so it's been it's been looking at at, at a whole range of uh, related matters since the 1990s at least uh, in terms of education, thinking of such, uh, notions like lifelong learning, skills, and ultimately competencies in in in, in the school scenario, beginning to wonder about the um, quite rapid changes in bigger society in terms of digital digitization and so forth so a whole range of those kinds of things happening and so and so the OECD was quite interested in also trying to pin down what do we mean by learning and um, and what might we then mean by innovative learning and innovation in education and have really been you know going out looking for examples so they they um, they sort of more recent research has sort of said, well, instead of coming with a top-down model, let's actually go, you know, and, and say, well, here's a model. This is how everyone should operate. Um, rather than doing that, they've actually gone and looked across the member states at some examples of innovative educational practice, and with that, educational locations. Um, and they've they've been they've been uh, writing around and researching around that, uh, with the idea of then being a bit more bottom up. So that is to say, well, here are some models. Uh, how about we begin to draw out some abstract, you know, abstract some general principles, and then make that a a, a kind of more international set of policies? Now, our government uh, doesn't matter who the stripe is. Our government's, you know, pretty much OECD sneezes and we catch cold. Um, you know, as our various governments are completely motivated by PISA results, um, and uh, you know, wanting New Zealand to be higher up the, the food chain in terms of those results. So there's those sorts of pressures as well. So you know they come together. They, they, they um, these various trends and and, and thought uh, um, pressures come together. And uh, I guess uh, you know then you 
you'll have within the Ministry of Education, you know, you'll have people who are coming in, perhaps, um, you know, younger graduates who are coming into the Ministry of Education out of, you know, victorious policy units and so on, and, you know, beginning to implement ideas that can then be carried school-wide. So, so, I, so I suppose if there is if there is an argument about the imaginary of the workplace of the future, or the imaginary of the twenty first century workplace, or the notion of something like Microsoft or Google as 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 a as a model of the kind of place people will work in, and therefore we should make schools look like that, um, I suppose to, I suppose architects and designers would have would have um, quite influenced that way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, my I mean, as like I I kind of. Um, come from that ergonomics background as well where there's the, the notion that you need to do some pretty good analysis of what's lacking and only then, once you've figured out what's lacking, try and find a solution that matches that lack and put that in place. And I, I suppose I kind of question whether or not anybody really sat down and analysed what was wrong with a classroom because it's worked pretty well for a lot of kids and you know so for me personally I had children who at the beginning of this year were both in single cell classroom for a term um, and absolutely loved it and absolutely thrived just and you know the, the, the having their own desk and their own space and having their own tote tray and and you know the school that they're at previously and now again is absolutely brand new state of the art amazing um, so it would be your best practice I suppose of the studio and they're fine, they're totally fine there as well, but they, I certainly did not see them go into a single cell classroom and find it lacking in some way or, or come home and go, oh, if only I had another 80 children in addition to the ones I'm with or, you know, I really am not, not enjoying only having interaction with one teacher. So I don't know if anyone ever actually went, oh, is it something that children need? I've read that um, education with single cell classrooms and single dedicated teachers um, or coming off a main corridor etc etc was set up in in the you know late 19th century so Mm. it was set up for the industrial revolution and Mm. to service I've heard that discourse as well and has and now we're in the knowledge economy that um, and this, we need to change our education in order to... Which I think would be a fantastic that. argument for putting it in place once the kids are teenagers and are moving towards, you know, moving towards being in those workspaces. But when they're six and seven and nine, you know, do they really need to get practice working in a hot-desking, open-plan workspace? Because actually maybe what they need is, and I think this is what my children particularly liked, is um, that consistency and that care and their own little space and the um, you know a little bit more sort of routine and predictability that a lot of kids really like and I think for children who do particularly like that routine and that predictability that those big studios are really stressful for them and it's it's that little subset of kids I think that are perhaps suffering as well as interestingly maybe the slightly above average um, academically and well behaved and quite quiet and you know in a, in a class of 90 those are the children that become quite invisible the naughty ones and the academic outliers are always going to get attention but the good little campaigners are probably going to be a bit lost in these 90 kids 
Okay, we're going to take a break there and we're going to hit the streets of AUT and ask our students what they have found um, working and studying in open plan spaces. Hey guys, Stan here. I'm on the streets and today I'm talking to people about open plan learning spaces. Have you been in an open plan office or open plan learning space? Yes, we had it when we were young. Um, yeah, an office, office space Okay. where I work part-time. It's open plan. It's not like blocked um, offices or anything. Everything's just open. How do you find it? It has its pros and, and cons. I'd say the pros are it's easy to communicate. If you were, say, a manager in an open office plan is just just there. I just feel like it's much, much more of a relaxed environment. So it gives people who learn differently, like visual learners and rote learners and like listening learners, like different environments. It doesn't feel like you're contained. Um, it feels like there's a bit more freedom there. But I'll say a disadvantage to that is there's noise level, you can get distracted. You probably need like more than one person to help focus on everyone because then one person can't do that many different things and that many different styles at the same time. I think it depends on what is actually being taught. Open plan might not work as well for maybe like math or something, but like for like art, open plan might work better. How's the, the one part of the discourse that, that I didn't elaborate on enough just previously was that along with all those uh, international, those megatrends, I think one of the other megatrends has been um, an evolution in the way um, teachers have thought about what they do in the classroom and the way you know people working in higher education in initial teacher education think about teaching and learning and how that might happen. And, and certainly since the 60s, I mean, there's been a strong shift towards more progressive ways of thinking about teaching and learning. And, and that's certainly gained momentum. So whilst I, I was, I guess, giving one side of the story where perhaps designers, and that would include furniture designers, by the way, mm. designers and uh, um, global governance are providing a lead. There actually also has been a lead at the education level in terms of thinking about classroom practice and how and, and learning and how that can happen. Um, so to pick up your comments a little earlier about the, um, you know, you haven't heard anybody saying what's wrong or, you know, mm. why, why aren't we identifying what's wrong with the, with the traditional model? Um, well, I mean, the best example I can think of there straight away is, is um, Prakash Nair, who's a designer, um, and he's, he's a partner in, in a massive firm called Fielding Nair, uh, an international Lackney fielding there. Uh, um, the three, I think Lackney has passed away in the meantime. But um, Nair has in fact been brought to New Zealand by the Minister of Education. So he's he's a he's a kind of a favoured a favoured person in in the ministry's eyes. So Nair Nair is the one who made this the statement: "Oh, the classroom is obsolete," and um, which is a statement I picked up in in quite a bit of my research lately because it's 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 a it's a it's a great rhetorical flourish you see um but 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 his argument from the american perspective is that um is that certainly at a at a a, a, purely at the level of of design and and facility um you know there's something very wrong in schools and he's talking in the american context Mm. where where funding arrangements are quite different than what we have here in new zealand right so, American public schools, though, perhaps a reasonably low bar. But, and that, to that, compare ourselves. Right. No, 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 and I'm not <laughs> suggesting we're comparing ourselves with that. But, but that that was that was one perspective, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it just allows me to suggest. We, we, I need to hasten to add that that one of the problems, one of the 
deficits or defects in, in, in uh, much of the research around learning environments is that the focus has tended to be on design and building performance and not around pedagogy. Mm-hmm. But Nair also had something to say about pedagogy and, he, and his argument and the argument of many others like him is that the problem with a single cell classroom is that it's, it, you know, Ken Fisher in, in, in Melbourne would be another example of, of this discourse, that the single cell classroom encourages, really, it predominates one modality, which is, you know, teach at the fireplace, you know, one direction yeah. in terms of discourse, the teacher presenting what uh, Paulo Freire used to call banking education, uh, where the teacher is delivering communiques to the learner. Uh, and and because the single-cell classroom is that inflexible that it doesn't allow other modalities, or at least not easily. So so by 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 completely upending the, the, the physical design, you create the possibilities for more modalities, uh, where you can more easily have group work, or you can more easily have yeah, little that, pairs working individually, or you yeah. can more easily have uh, opportunities for groups to workshop over here, I, there. I agree, but I think that you can still have a one teacher, 25 student model where you've got, and this is what my children came from, where all of the desks were arranged in groups and there was a little breakout area and they could be on the mat and there were little couches in the corner. And and so I don't think it's the physical space, it was the, that they did have their own space as well as having so, like like fewer students, mm. fewer peers in their mm. classroom and they could learn all their names really quickly and um, and that kind of, one teacher that knew them really personally. Mm. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that one of my children's teachers particularly doesn't know who she is. And I'm just like, well, and, and, and I don't, and I kind of get it because there's 93 children in that class. But there are three teachers. There are three teachers. There must be one of those teachers who knows. One of them, one of them yeah. does. I, I, and, and <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. I think that there, there maybe there needs to be some kind of Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, the school stuff is not really my... my I was going to say, and I was yeah. going to ask you about yeah. that. Because yeah. the office space, it, it's like having experienced a lot of open plan spaces yeah. and currently working in one, it doesn't... There are times when I I enjoy it and other yeah. times I don't enjoy it. I mean, what what is happening? What are you saying? You, so, you mentioned your law firm who did an yeah, awesome job. They did a great job. What are the what, what are those kind of tips and tricks? So, and what should people be in doing? In terms of my, my my big study that that's now published um, in the ergonomics literature, um, we had the kind of the best case scenario, both in terms of coworker friendships, supervisor support, and fewer social liabilities, distraction, and, and uncooperative behaviour, and so on. So the best case scenario was sharing an office with one or two people. So that seemed to be your sweet spot where you got the support, you had access to others, you um, could share work, cooperate and collaborate, but it wasn't overwhelming. And, you know, I would like to be able to say, you know what, workplaces, just just do that. But I think realistically and for efficiencies and for um, cost savings, it just isn't going to happen. I think that if anything, there's going to be an accelerated move towards open planning and open plan and hot desking and activity-based working, which is, to be fair, I think quite a so activity-based working is where if you're doing a particular project or a particular type of work, you go to that physical space, 
um, in, in a work area, but that's not your usual desk. And then later on, a different group of people might use that, that work area. So the space is going to be designed to suit the activity that's happening. So that, and I think that depending on the type of work that you're doing, that can work really, really well. Um, but I think it ignores those individuals who actually really value their space, who need privacy, the introverted, mm. um, the people at the introverted end of that spectrum. Um, and there's only so much that noise cancelling headphones can do um, because you, you, know, you have visual distraction as well. And I, I think that for those individuals um, that kind of require that home away from home environment to work well, um, there needs to be some, you know, measures put in place to allow them to kind of to improve their well-being because they were the individuals I think that really became uh, quite stressed and probably ended up reacting really negatively towards their colleagues. So you were talking when we were together um, a couple of weeks ago um, about people having to take work home because yeah. I just wonder how in in especially like in a law firm I mean there must be quite intricate complex complex detail that you're working with and that that really requires a, a bit of silence and yeah yeah and so this law firm did did a good job in terms of having a, a library which was completely silent no phones no computers nothing so you just literally went there if you needed absolute silence but they also had these little collab rooms which you could book or go into so they were also soundproofed and but they were still um you know there was some quite strict norms around not, not being allowed to camp out in them so people couldn't start using them as an office. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I was having dinner with a good friend of mine uh, a, f- a few months ago when um, we were talking about this and he works in a hot desking environment and he said that he had a colleague who would turn up to work at six o'clock every morning before anyone got there take all of her bits and pieces and her soft toys and her kids photos and everything out of her locker because there was a clear desk policy, pile them onto a chair, roll her chair to her preferred desk, set it all up and she would do that every single morning so that she could work comfortably and be happy and then at the end of every day she would pack it all up again, wheel it across and put it away in her locker and I heard that and I was like, that just broke my heart, you know, there's just no need for that poor person to have that added load on her day when someone could have just gone oh you know what Janice you have the desk just knock yourself out so I think where there's these really blanket policies around clear Mm. desks I think that's where it can kind of fall down a little bit Mm. I think that that's I mean that comment that was made recently about um, this being a one-size-fits-all policy Mm. I mean it's ironic because because no, no two um, schools with flexible spaces will look the same. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, and, I mean, the, and the whole the whole intent of the pedagogy that's meant to take place in those spaces is really driven to to a personalised, mm. unique approach, and isn't and isn't designed to be one size fits all. But if we're talking about a, a, a state mandated policy. I guess that's one size fits all. That is to say, mm. you know, all schools are going to conform to the standard. Well, Leon, you have spent time going out into schools that are doing, taking this, following this approach. Um, and what what have you seen? I mean, you've, you've you spent quite a lot of time in quite a few schools around. Yeah, I mean, the the, the interesting thing about the um, um, just to pick up on on some of the points as well, you know, in terms of relationships, 
Um, I raised that actually just yesterday with a teacher. I said, "What do you what do you say to that to that charge, you know, that that uh, that claim that uh, you know in a big space like this you can't have a relationship with the children?" And um, and they they had in actual fact just last week done a survey with the with the students in their common, um, and they asked them just two questions. And the the, the first question was, um, "Who you know in, amongst other teachers, who do you who do you feel um, most?" comfortable with I guess in terms of sharing a problem you know discussing a difficult issue and then um, similarly who who do you um, who would you go to and feel happy about sharing you know triumphs and victories and you know wonderful stories and all that kind of thing and um, and then they they've, they've where they've got to just showed me the table where they've got to at the moment is they've analyzed the results into a table and so of these whatever it is 90 children or something there's about six who didn't associate with any of the teachers on either of those two. Or was it, well, that, that was actually going to be one of their next step. Are the same? Are they the same six? Or they're different six? Who you know? And and so that was the, that was really their key focus was to. It's a bit of a leading question, though, and it, focus on those. Does children. the question say who who of these three teachers would you go to if you if you had a problem? Students are always going to put someone. Or did it say if you had a problem, would you yeah, go? Uh, Do you know what I mean? Uh, well, like, you know, I, I, I mean, I saw the question, but I, I, you know, I can't recollect it exactly. So, um, but it was just the just one. The one question is about you know the person you could go to with with problems yeah. and challenges, and the one person you go to you know when you want to skype about something or yeah. tell a happy story or whatever. Um, and and um, you know, I think that, that 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 teachers working in those big spaces will acknowledge that they. It's not possible for them to to have a close relationship with all ninety students, mm-hmm. but that's exactly why you'd have, for example, you know, like in your situation, Andrew, with the tag lists. So that there's always there's so the teachers always take responsibility, and that's been my experience across both primary and secondary schools that I've looked at, um, is that the teachers take responsibility for a group of students mm. because they've got to be able to report. Yeah, they've got to be able to talk at parents' evening. So I mean, modern learning environments. It sounds like they're here to stay much the same way as open plan offices are not going to change anytime soon what's the future hold for these spaces both in a, in a learning environment and also in, in our office well, office environment. in a workplace I suppose where I'm where I'm kind of sitting at the moment is we need to make the best of a bad situation I think they don't have to be bad I think that a lot of them have done this one-size-fits-all roll out an open plan environment and insist on hot desking insist on clear desk policies. So I think what needs to happen is that organisations need to be a bit better at analysing the needs of their employees and analysing the type of work that's done and making sure that if they do go open plan and hot desking that that's actually going to suit the work and the workers. And if there is an exception, if there is you know, the Janice who needs to sit by the window and has to have her stuff around her, maybe make allowances for those individuals because they're the ones that are going to really suffer in the same way that children with you know, info processing issues or dyslexia are the ones that just aren't probably going to cope mm-hmm. in those mad open plan environments yeah, that, yeah, you know, so it, it's maybe stepping away from that one size fits all and being a little bit more analytical about the way that they're mm-hmm. ruled out. Yeah, and I, I think that, that the, um, I mean, in the end, I, I probably fall down much in the same place. That is to say, um, I think schools with a combination of the two models uh, are perhaps um, in a better place than, than, than schools that are just, you know, from the get-go built with flexible spaces. Because at least if you've got 
if you've got the 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 the, um, the you know both flexible spaces and and uh, single cell classrooms, if you've got that model, um, it also gives teachers because mm. what we haven't talked about yet, talk about well being. I know, but I mean there is enormous pressure on teachers to work collaboratively, to work in teams that are effective, to to collaborate on planning. That's a big ask for teachers um, to year do year yeah. in, year yeah. out. And so just every now and then, but of course, in my words, you could tease out the, the implication that, that a single cell classroom is actually a getaway for slacking off. And that's been actually another problem, is that, that, that when teachers do go into that door, room, close mm. the door, you don't know what's going on in there. Mm. Uh, and and uh, um, but But I guess, you know, just to finish what I was saying to begin with, though, is that that if you do have the the, 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 the two operating simultaneously mm. in the school, you can give teachers an opportunity to say, okay, this coming year, if you'd like to go and work in a single cell, you can, yeah, and just work choice. with 30 students and do that for a year. And hopefully the, the good practices that are picking up in the flexible spaces will then yeah. translate into the, into, the, into the single cell as well. I do think, so just anecdotally from my kids' teachers, I think that that feeling of, not being monitored so much but continually being surveilled in their practice Mm. is probably a bit exhausting and maybe sometimes it would be nice to be able to just do it your way for a while you know and I I wonder though what would happen if you had a situation where there was some single cell classrooms would they become the preferred would that become a treat would the teachers like be campaigning to have their year in a single cell that would be quite telling um, or in the parents of the students who are like, yay, my kid got into room four this year, I'm so relieved. You know, so that would be an interesting kind of longitudinal thing to see. Or maybe it would work the other way and everyone would be, you know, mad keen to be in the great learning studio environments. Who knows? Who knows what the future might hold? Well, it sounds very interesting. And um, clearly plenty of topics for us to explore further down the track. Hey, thanks, guys. Welcome. Thank you very much for listening and we hope you enjoyed that discussion and maybe learnt something or formed an opinion. If you have a question you'd like us to tackle in a future episode, you can contact us using the hashtag AskAUT. You can also reach AUT on all the social media channels like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Snapchat. Please also rate and review us on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast. Thanks. You know how to whistle, not just you What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What's the deal with that? What's the matter with me, baby? What's the matter with you? How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? I say who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. What's the deal with everything? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? At this point, I'm too afraid to ask.